Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm the host. We are exploring the ideas of spirituality and psychedelics in the modern world and how we can restore an indigenous worldview as a way of in essence, saving our planet. And today we have a special guest on the show. Uh, Four Arrows is joining us here today. He's actually in Mexico, which is a, a beautiful, beautiful spot here. We were talking about paddleboarding for a second here, but let me just introduce uh, who Four Arrows is because uh, I've been reading a book by uh, him and uh, and Darsha Narais, uh, Narvais, who I just had on the podcast a week ago, and it's called Restoring the Kinship Worldview. And uh, this book, to me, is a is a transformational piece of work. Uh, in basically, we're gonna we're gonna really get into it in a lot more depth today. But uh, but Four Arrows is an author of twenty three books, numerous chapters, articles, peer review papers. Uh, he is uh, you know he he's been named as truly one of the most inspirational teachers. Uh, he has a PhD. He's, we're going to get into all of his credentials, but more than his credentials for me is here is a person who's really doing the work inside. This is a person who has, uh, uh, is really teaching us what it means to uh, embody a, a worldview that is full of compassion and connection. And uh, I look forward to uh, having a great conversation here with Four Arrows today. Uh, Four Arrows, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, I'm honored to be on your show. Thank you. So let's start with, uh, I mean, I, I have so many places I want to start, but I want to start with this, uh, the setup of, of, of kind of who you are and what really has connected me to you uh, is you, you, you have this story of your near-death experience. And I think our own human experiences really begin to shape the kind of work we do in the world. And, uh, and your, your experience, it, it kind of a near-death experience really shaped how you think about language, how you think about fear, how you think about the indigenous worldview. So can we start there in a kind of personal moment? Uh, because I think that helps us set up why you're so passionate about the, the kind of work that you're involved in, Don. Well, sure, I appreciate it. And it's unusual for, for that to be a starting starting place. And I think it probably is absolutely a, 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 a good observation that it is the ultimate starting place for me. I, I, uh, I had no background uh, in my life. I grew up in the county of St. Louis. Um, mom and her four sisters talked about stories of their uh, Caldwell adoption of a Cherokee girl who escaped from the Trail of Tears in Missouri, but uh, no, no, you know, no uh, affiliations of, of any as association beyond those stories. And they were told really more in a way that was not something that they were, they were necessarily proud of. My grandfather had committed suicide, et cetera. So I uh, was kind of alienated from indigeneity until I, uh, after the Marine Corps uh, and after after Nam, um, I had a chip on my shoulder about the lies about the war, and I took it out uh, by doing whitewater kayaking, whitewater, and trying to be fir do first ascents. And tried one here in Mexico on the Rio Urique in Copper Canyon, um, and uh, we were doing great. My partner and I, a fellow firefighter at the time, David Carr. And uh, loving it. It was beautiful, about 1,500 cubic feet per second, nice, easy rides. But portaging was a monster. We, I mean, there were drops that were so big that we had to portage our inflatable boats and uh, backpacks. And I, I said to Dave, I said, you know, if we just had more water, it'd be great. And it started raining. 
and it didn't stop. And flooding waterfalls were coming off of these. I mean, it's a ten. It's an you know, it's a it's it's a it's an eight thousand foot deep canyon, deeper than the Grand Canyon. And uh, and so, boy, it started getting way beyond my skill level. Uh, I think David was doing better. He was a better kayaker. But we had to scout each rapid. And I, we scouted one, and I looked to the left and saw an eddy. I thought, well, I don't have to get out of my boat and risk all the slipping and sliding on the rocks. Well, it wasn't an eddy. It was the entire river waiting to go into an underground hole. And I went into it and uh, knew it was the end. But the most beautiful, wonderful feeling I could ever uh, explain uh, hit me as soon as I went under. And, you know, much many years later, I, uh, I, I studied Ray Moody's near-death experience and his dissertations and stuff and, and all the things that people have talked about. And since, well, it was exactly that. OK, so we don't need to go into that. But afterwards, uh, um, I came out the hole, obviously, and, and, and David had portaged uh, uh, to a place where he could get on the on the, a rock. I had climbed through a hole in the rock. Um, uh, I, 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 he had climbed through a hole on, on, on a side of a rock to get up to the top and uh, didn't have to get in the water. Anyway, long story short, the boat of, uh, eventually came out. I, it had been stuck in the hole and uh, we had to fix the leaks and all that stuff. And, and we wound up in a cave uh, that because the river was too dangerous. And in that cave, we slept with mountain lion that showed us the way out. I mean, there's a whole story. People can watch it. So I don't tell the story. Just go to YouTube. And yeah, no, you, there's a little documentary about it. And I really yeah. recommend it. I'll put a All link right. to it in the show notes. All right, good. But, but I, I, I think what I guess what I'm, I want to really pull in here is in this in this moment in your life, you had kind of a wake up about, you know, uh, and can you kind of take it? Take me into the transformation. Yeah, I want to jump there. Yeah. I'll jump in there. So I had a vision of, a, of the mountain lion and the fawn that the Tower Humara had run down. They turned into letters, C-A-T-F-A-W-N, concentration, activated transformation, fear, authority, words, and nature. Uh, it took 15 years to really process this. And the idea was that I learned that because I was with the Tower Humara and I lived with them when I came back the second trip. They rescued me from the canyon. I saw something that I hadn't seen in the dominant world that I grew up in. And, and, and this vision kept haunting me. And in a long, and it basically means that the trance-based learning phenomenon of healing, and we'll get to that with, the, with your psilocybin and stuff, is concentration-activated transformation. And the, the role of the animals, I mean, I, I could do two weeks on talking about, it, right? The fawn were four of the indigenous worldview precepts I witnessed that were very different. How they do fear is op practicing a virtue. It's, it's an opportunity to practice virtue. How authority comes not from external sources, but from independent inside in, in autonomy of, of a spirit, mind, body phenomena. Words are sacred vibrations. Um, uh, and nature is uh, is part of us and we're part of it and it's a teacher and this this combination of understanding and reflecting on worldview which we'll talk about later um as a foundation for all the things that we're doing to destroy our planet and ourselves um once you get that cognitive self metacognitive portion of ah, I see where that came from and where I can go and what might be a better complementarity to what I'm doing you got to use 
trans-based learning to get there. It can't be done with willful determination. And so, you know, that was what happened to me. And then from then I went back and I got a degree in uh, uh, curriculum and instruction with an emphasis on indigenous worldview. Right out the door, I got the job as director of education at Oglala Lakota College on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Became a sun dancer, was a, made a relative of, of the Oglala Medicine Horse Teospaye. And I continued to live with uh, indigenous peoples that were still practicing in an indigenous way, the, the Ralmari that, that I told you about, uh, the Cimarron people that are at the bottom of the canyon that have not been subjected to Western religions or culture, the Kunkhak. Uh, I just got back from being with the Kogi of Colombia. So all of that has created sort of my deep, deep scholarly belief as a professor that the foundational worldview that we lost about 7,000 years ago, and it's got on, in the Americas 500 years ago, went, went crazy, right? Colonization is the culprit for what's happening. Now, this is not a good and bad you know, thing. I, I'd say to people, look at the 40 worldview precepts in our, in our book and in our writings as a, like in a non-binary way, this is how indigenous people look at the world, that there's positive and negatives and they're both required and they, they got to work together to find balance. So I'm not, this isn't a rigid binary because the dominant worldview is a, is a rigid binary worldview. So it's tricky, but um, under, understanding our indigenous worldview instead of continuing to kill it, which we're doing is key to any rebuilding of the systems that are going to destroy themselves all around us in our now. Wow. You know, uh, four arrows. I mean, uh, I think the way that you have now set up this conversation is that you, you had a transformative moment. And in that vision, you began to realize that the vision that you were getting was aligning and in essence, drawing you back into an indigenous worldview, a way of being in the world, a way of understanding and kind of waking up from this trance of dominance, right? Our culture has been in it in its own trance in one sense, right? This worldview of consumption, of domination, of colonization, of masculine energy that is, you know, in an essence, just pulling and plundering. And we wonder why we have, you know, the levels of anxiety that we have in our culture, you know, I, 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 I've, I've talked about on this show, the rise of, uh, you know, SSRI medication is just uh, astronomical in the last 30, 40 years, people are disconnected from their families, they're disconnected from their own spiritual traditions, they no longer have ritual, they no longer have spirituality all the spirit and magic of our world has been stripped away and all we've got is just you know make more money and try to get more entertainment and we wonder why we our families are breaking down and we're we, we're living in this anxious ways and what i think what you're putting forward is is not to say hey let's all become indigenous you are saying there's a worldview that's a very different concept than kind of an appropriation of a way of being it's to say oh, you've, you've brought up a very important and, and brilliant insight actually you've expanded my use of trans-based learning to something that dr michael fisher says in a, in a book he wrote about my work as a dehypnotizing technology also hundred percent. This yeah, is exactly why I wanted you on this show. Yeah, the hypnosis of the of, of the masses and, and the cat fawn connection allows you to find ah, especially in early childhood. That's when hypnosis is the strongest, right? So so that's a real important thing. And then also you brought up making a distinction between sacred trace 
uh, place-based knowledge, indigenous knowledge and worldview. Sacred place-based knowledge, you only can have, and I don't have it, if you speak the language fluently, you've been in that culture, you know the ceremonies, ceremonies, which are, by the way, trans-based learning opportunities. And if you have all of that, we've and that's being lost, and we've got to fight for that sovereignty and for those people on the front lines of, 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 of the last remaining, uh, only 20% of, of the earth right now has uh, biodiversity, and that's that controlled by indigenous people. The yeah, can, can we just stop on that one? Because this yeah. is a really important point that you make really well, and I think you did this at the, I think it was the UN you had a presentation. Uh, I forget where exactly it was that I saw it. And you had this beautiful little two minute video that just talks about species loss on our planet. What's happening in the kind of the hockey stick curve of extinction of species since our, you know, since this dominant worldview has been kind of ramping up, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's power in our world. And, and your comment is to say those cultures, those peoples, those indigenous peoples that have protected uh, land base and, and, and kind of land based knowledge and land based places have protected species that this worldview can be shown to be the only one that's going to protect species from being extinct and as darsh as dr darsha narvai says uh, your your author in this this amazing book she is a professor of uh, of psychology and moral de development at the at university of notre dame and her argument alongside you is to say this is the best model we have for raising children and allowing them to thrive as adults is an indigenous worldview. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to become indigenous. This means well, that's that a distinction. That's a yeah. that based knowledge. That's being indigenous, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's so few and there's no way we're going to be able to, to even save them, let alone see them continue to, to, to make a difference. The worldview is not subject to uh, misappropriation and all the new age wannabe stuff. The worldview belongs to everybody indigenous with a small eye to this planet. Mm. Now, half of the, my indigenous brothers and sisters, you know, they get upset when we're teaching this stuff to regular people, right? Half of them say, thank you for doing it, right? Mm. And, and, that's, and it's understandable. You've got to understand both positions, right? But indigenous worldview are the in common factors that all the great diversity of indigenous cultures have in their place-based knowledge. That's something we need to re-indigenize ourselves to whatever place we're living in. Uh, and, and if there are people there that happen to still hold on to that, which is getting rare, well, then we do everything we can to support that. Yeah, you uh, let's dive into some of these. You have a really nice list and I'll put this list on the on the podcast notes, but you have a beautiful list of 40 uh, you know, worldview manifest you call it dominant and indigenous worldview manifestations and you said it's not it's not intended to be rigid and binary, but is almost kind of a spectrum like our culture has been in this, you know, the, the, the dominant worldview, which is hierarchical, fear-based, living with strong social kind of hierarchies, uh, you know, focus on self, personal gain, materialistic, you know, lacking empathy. It's, it's, it's human dominated, right? It's like the humans are the center. All the other species are just, in essence, just consumption for us, you know, uh, for us to be able to better ourselves. And this is the dominant. And you begin to go through the 40 uh, ideas and ways of living in the world that are, in, in essence, a counter to that. Another to help us balance it out, right? Emphasis on communal welfare, right? Courage and fearless trust in the universe. Non-materialistic. Uh, I mean, empathetic. 
uh, animistic and biocentric, right? So these are these are saying that are that the plants, the trees, the water, these are living beings that we are can be in relationship with, and they're spiritual. And I think one of the things that that I really was was amazed at was how many of these are deeply embedded in spiritual ways of thinking about the world. Uh, so I I mean I think you guys are calling us back. Uh, and in essence, calling us back because this is how we all used to be in the world. Right. This isn't like a new thing that we're inventing now. This is a hearkening back to a way that lives in balance in sacred union and kinship with one another, the planet and all other living species. So this is, uh, you know, for me, really a really important concept. And I guess for for this podcast. I, I, I want us to look at this word that you, you know, you put up here uh, and you have it in a couple of times, but it's an openness to trance-based learning as natural and essential. Trance-based learning as natural and essential. Can you take me into the history of, uh, of, of, of what this means, what you mean by this, and what have we lost by eradicating the idea of, of trance-based learning? Well, all animals, all creatures from the research that I've studied uh, use this phenomenon that we can call hypnosis. Uh, and uh, although, you know, I've I wrote a book uh, uh, on uh, emergency use of hypnosis that Prentice Hall published, and they wouldn't let me use the word hypnosis. So they, they called it patient communication for first <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So, hold on. What year was that? That they were like really hesitant with that? Yeah, uh, nineteen ninety-one or something so like I, that. I think now you could probably do it, and there'd be. Well, option. actually, it was banned. I was speaking to fifteen hundred emergency room physicians in Brisbane, Australia, and they came up and said, "Doctor Jacobs, we can't, we can't buy your book." They said it's not available. So I called my publisher, and they had remaindered it. I didn't, I didn't even know what that word meant. Uh, some big shot PhD MD said. This material should be used only by licensed medical physicians who are certified in clinical hypnosis. So it was taken off the market. And uh, one month ago, one of my doctoral students at Fielding, Brad Dump, um, he, um, he uh, is a paramedic by trade, and he, he did a dissertation on uh, intuition and its importance. Anyway, I said, if you want this book to get published, go do it. He did what Routledge of London is publishing and we got a contract and we're working on a revision of it. So if you're right, the time is here, right? But let's go back to the idea. A person in, during the first hour of stress, all creatures become receptive to the communication of a perceived trusted authority figure. If you go on YouTube, put in wild horse hypnotist and you'll see me doing this with wild horses. So this is natural. This is natural. And, and during that first hour of trauma, someone uh, who, who goes up to a car and there's somebody bleeding inside and they, you can't open the door, you could, you could go up there and say, I'm training these things. The ambulance has been called. The worst is over. Things are being made ready. I can't open the door in your hemorrhaging. So I want you to listen to me closely. When I count to three, I want you to stop your bleeding. 90% of the cases within the first hour that person will be able to control their own autonomic nervous system and it will stop their bleeding, right? And um, so, you know, I've, I've had clients when I, I taught hypnosis at UC Berkeley, uh, I had clients in, you know, in a practice where uh, a guy sweated under his arm so bad, he was an executive in San Francisco and he had gone to doctors and taken drugs and, and all this stuff. And I said, what do you say to yourself before you go into the meeting? He said, oh, I look at my watch and I have to go in. 
I said, well, I'll make the appointment for you. I'll see you next week. But in the meantime, just say, I want to, not I have to. He called me up four days later, canceled the appointment. He said, you must have hypnotized me on the phone. I haven't sweated in two days, you know. So it's language is powerful. Indigenous people see language. They have verb-based languages. So it's very hard to concretize in like the European languages do. So this natural, you know, Rudyard Kipling said, uh, words are mankind's most powerful drug. Well, that's, that's looking at it from a dominant worldview perspective. The indigenous approach to drugs uh, is very different. We see, the, I mean, the Aztecs here and, and the, and the uh, Nahuatl people where I am right now, we understand that they used mushrooms for 8,000 years ago, but, the, but it wasn't looked at as a, quote, drug. It was looked at as a spirit that would teach us, not necessarily even heal us of some injury, but to teach us about how to heal it. Um, it, was, it was a very different dynamic of, 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 of relationships. Um, I'll just give one brief anecdote. I was with the Raval Marie, like I said, uh, in, in their culture, and it took me a long time to get accepted. I mean, they're, they're, you know, the drug cartels are wiping them out. And we're in a very remote place, you know, as, as people that watch the, the video will see. And um, this isn't in the video. Uh, I uh, was invited to a, um, a, a peyote ceremony, and I had never taken it. And I was very honored. I was first ex-outsider to do it. And there was eight men sitting on, on a circle of logs at a very special place. And a 102-year-old shaman, Augustine Ramos, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is, this is, this is, if I'm ever going to do a first time, this is the place to do it. And, uh, uh, I was a young man and, and, and I'm sitting there and out of the corner of my eye, I'm seeing him, the shaman go up to the guys for maybe 10, 20 seconds. And then the guy getting off the log and going out in a, in a trance stupor. And I'm watching that happen. And now my brain, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a young scholar. My brain's going, ah, oh, darn it. This isn't the for real peyote ceremony. This is some kind of a symbolic one. And, and then as it's going on, now I'm making a decision. What do I do? If he comes up to me and does whatever he does, do I fake it? Like these guys are apparently doing, you know, or do I just sit there and say, you know, I, you know, I don't know what to do. So I'm, that was kind of how I was thinking, right? He came up to me. He took an old red bandana and he had a big peyote bulb in it. And he blew into it. I was gone for six to eight hours. Now, if that's not an example of the spirit that is, and, 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 and as long as we keep going and doing our ayahuasca ceremonies or our psilocybin from mushroom, without this understanding of spirit, which is what you're bringing up, without this understanding that we are spirits inhabiting a body, the plant is a spirit inhabiting uh, a, a body. Ayahuasca, it's two plants that are, you know, uh, that told the people how to make that spirit come out. And and we've, this is just one example of how, until we recognize this, that, that spirits and the spirits of a tree, the spirits of, a, of an animal, until we recognize that sentience, that equality, that wisdom. If you look at Oxford University or Webster's Dictionary and look up nature, nature is defined as everything but human. There we are. 
You know, it's um, I, I you, you mentioned a couple of things and I want to kind of dive, dive into uh, some of the experiences that you've had. And, and, and let's talk about the Sundance and some of these in, indigenous practices and what they're about and why they're so important. Right. So if you think about we've had these rituals as human beings, uh, as we've evolved for thousands of years as coming of age rituals. Right. Like you actually open your book. Darsha reads this and I have the audio book of uh, of the kinship worldview. Uh, and the, one of the opening uh, lines of your chapter one is she's reading this ancient, beautiful text from from uh, a First Nations in, o in the Okanagan here in British Columbia. And it's a grandmother talking about sending young children like the age of eight out into the woods before bed to meet their spirit guide uh, and to get familiar with that before they go to sleep. That this is a normal practice of, in essence, make-believe, altered states. Uh, you have a, you know, you have a, a make-believe friend, you have a spirit animal, you have a guide. That this was normal, right? That to have these kinds of ways of interacting uh, in the world was normal for a child. And then it was, there's a ceremony of coming of age for, for the young people to be able to move from childhood and adolescence into being an adult. And in that you're stripped of away of all of your own kind of family protection. You have to connect with the spirit in nature. I mean, these are ways that we've lost. We have young people now that are adrift, never having a ceremony, never having a coming of age, uh, you know, moment. And what that means is they don't belong anywhere. Part of what these moments are, these rituals and these ceremonies, is you feel a sense of belonging and connection back into the community. And so, take us into your some of your experiences. What 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 did they uh, what would, what did they do for you in enhancing, like for instance, the Sundance experience and these kinds of things? I know you can't talk about the specifics, but can you talk about the transformation that took place uh, by going through those kinds of rituals and altered state experiences? Well, I mean, you're right. I, I, I can't really talk about uh, the specifics on the Sundance, but uh, I, I can talk about, I mean, you're the, like, for example, the sacred ceremonies, there's seven sacred ceremonies, many, many, many ceremonies, but seven main ones for the Lakota. And one of them is, is as you say, the rites of passage for, for puberty. And um, one is the ombleche or vision, uh, going, seeking a vision um, out by, on a mountain by yourself, et cetera. Sundance, of course, uh, is, is, is one of the more, more sacred ones. Um, each one, though, is very unique in its, in, its, in its goals, right? I mean, they're not all, you know, rites of passage. Uh, many, many of them are to learn a particular uh, thing, to give a certain kind of a, a, a gratitude for a number of things, to, to, and, to, and to pray for the world. Uh, you know, that's one of the things that's, that's also missing from the dominant worldview is that when we're doing ceremony, when we're saying prayers, it's all about the relatedness that we have. And we always throw in and may the four-legged, may the two-legged continue and, and may the poor people. I mean, and so it's, it's so inseparable. It's so inseparable from spirit, from body, from mind, from the ceremony. And what makes it go deep is the trance that ceremony causes, whether it be, like you say, a confrontation with a grizzly bear, or whether it's a, a suffering in a sun dance, or whether it's a, the dark heat of, a, of a, an Anipi ceremony, or a purification lodge, or uh, whatever it is, in that ceremony, this understanding of the polarities, 
you know, the Kogi, every time we would go somewhere, they would put uh, uh, something on our wrist that to remind us that one was positive, one was negative, but that was our right and left hand, our right and left hemisphere. And until we can regain this balance, um, Howard Teich is a, a guy who has studied uh, mythology, and he's a good friend of mine for 40 years. And, and he studied all the twin hero stories in the world. And uh, they are always about uh, the twins, could be a boy and a girl, two boys, two girls, going out to fight the monsters, which are those things that are in all of us and have always been, and, you know, indigenous are, are not. Um, and that's why these, these, these learning from nature is so important. We, you know, nature doesn't, in, in normality, doesn't have greed. It doesn't have jealousy, right? And so he said that the twin hero stories that have emerged post-colonization, the, the solar and lunar twins are usually, it's always the sun and the moon are the dynamics. The solar twin is dominant. The left brain is dominant. The lunar twin often kills the solar, Romulus and Ramus, Cain and Abel, or, or Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals Hercules and Iphicles. I never heard of Iphicles before, right? Hercules is the strong soul but Iphicles was equally powerful in a lunar way. Later that got transcribed into masculine and feminine. And because it was a solar world, the masculine rose and we put down the lunar and we put down the feminine, which we're, which we're still doing. And indigenous, and indigenous twin hero stories are just the opposite. They are about that complimentary. I just, one brief one is that I have a lot of Navajo students and where the two come to the father is one of, is their twin hero story. Monster Slayer is the name of the solar twin. Child born of the water is the lunar twin. Wow. They, whoa, whoa, whoa. Go, that's an amazing contrast. Oh, yeah. Child born of the water. Yeah, this is what, and that represents, the, this why I chose this one. And they go to fight the monster with the long arms. I can't remember what, he, what that monster represented in us. But Monster Slayer says, I got it. I got it, brother. I takes out an arrow. And I, can, I got this monster. Child born of the water whispers, oh, brother. I think his arms are too long. He'll get that arrow and get us before that arrow reaches. I know you're a good shot, but well, Hercules would have called, told Iphicles, you know, call him a sissy and, and whatever. Monster Slayer puts his arrow away. So what should we do, brother? Let's talk about this. Child born of the water says, I think we should sing to him. Sing to him? So they put their arms together and they sing to the monster. The monster never having been treated that way lets them go. And so this complementarity between the sun and the moon is part of our origins. I'll never forget Sam Keene as it was a dear friend of mine. I lived with him for uh, near, next to him for a number of years. I've been out of touch for a number of years also. Author of Fire in the Belly. Um, and uh, he brought me to see Joseph Campbell, who was a friend of his. And uh, I'm sitting there listening to Joseph Campbell tell this story about the Genesis the story. And then he tells a story, I think it was Blackfoot or Crow, about their origin story. And I'll never forget right after, and this is before I was really totally getting it. Joseph Campbell, gets up, you can see he, was, he had to stop a tear from coming down. And he says, compare that with Genesis after he told the, the indigenous origin story, right? Uh, which wasn't about, you know, 
any kind of dominance or sin or, or kicking now, out and now and judging you and now yeah yeah totally done of a different different you know right different, yeah different well, one so, one can contribute to a worldview of fear i mean this there's you know where there's a sky god up here a masculine is going to send you to hell and have these in groups and out groups right so we've got the we've got the certainty of how we're going to understand god and everyone else doesn't understand it and so they're they need to be defeated or wiped out or slain right that's the old dominant worldview and you see that in all of the abrahamic religions right and they get sucked into that i mean i i come from a background as a christian minister an ordained minister and so i'm realizing that you know uh there are there's a thread of of this kind of we'll call it the indigenous worldview still you know in the shadows in christianity right that jesus was confronting this dominant worldview but then it got you know with augustine in the third and fourth century with christianity this dominant worldview was uh, christianity was no longer this uh this this small sect of people that was challenging caesar and challenging the notions of power and war and violence and instead this small band of followers of jesus become the dominant worldview again as uh, as christianity becomes the, the the only religion that is acceptable you know in the fourth century and and beyond so you you begin to see that this dominant worldview that you are that you've kind of rightly kind of put up is uh is in such contrast to this this other way of being in the world full of grace and mercy and this idea that you the story that you mentioned of singing to the monster right i i just that's such a beautiful way a friend of mine i would just did a documentary called dosed two and my friend Lori brooks was given a, a, a diagnosis of cancer end-of-life cancer and she, she went through uh, a psychedelic treatment and i i was amazed at what happened before she was filled with fear about dying and then she had this beautiful altered state experience and what came to her was a new relationship with cancer she says no longer do i want to use the words you know uh, I'm, I'm fighting cancer. I hate cancer or, you know, you know, F cancer like that. That's a dominant model. She says what I, I began to do just like your, what your story, she goes, in essence, she began to sing to her cancer. She began to sing to her body. She gave it a name. She began to befriend it. She welcomed it into her, into her world. And what happened then? Guess what? The, 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 the clash is gone. The monster went away and she no longer has fear. And guess what? The cancer is retreating and every scan that she's getting now is less and less. And the physician who's my brother. So this isn't just some kind of story in the middle of nowhere that I don't know. I get to see her scans for real. And she says, my cancer, I'm not dying anymore. And my cancer seems to be going away. The only thing that changed was my relationship to myself. Yeah, That's the only thing that changed. And you know, in the book, I don't know if you've gotten to it yet, but I talk about in 2008, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I had a nine centimeter tumor in my abdomen and they, they all, I had it in Mexico and UCLA doctors saying, got to do the surgery, got to do the chemo. And if you do, you probably got 10 years as a terminal cancer. Um, I did a lodge, did a, an EP ceremony, uh, went in, came out smiling. My wife was going, well, I'm saying, no, this is a whole new ball game, honey. Uh, this is an opportunity. This is a, this is this is a gift. This is a gift, and we're going to use it as a gift. And uh, anyway, long story sh short, uh, that was 2008, and I had one remission since then. And because I got out of 
the, the routines of exercise and eating my moringa off my tree and, 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 the, and the sweat lodges and all the I mean, purification lodges, all the stuff that I was doing, you know, I got involved with writing a book or something. And I went, hey, thank you. Thank you, cancer. Thank you for the for the reminder, you know. And I'm here. I am. I'm you know, you know, I'm, I'm 76 now, so I was quite a while back and surfing with my eight year old. Right. You know, like so my your uh, story. Yeah. totally works. You know, and I I think about this like my um you know my daughter, my oldest daughter, her name's Milan, and uh, she's a, a registered massage therapist, and so she has a really good understanding of the mind body connection. She works with the body, right? And so she keeps. I mean, she has Crohn's disease, which is a really debilitating, uh, you know, uh, anti-inflammatory. I'm sorry, anti uh, where your body is attacking itself, and it's a you know it's a really painful process for her to be in but she through her work with plant medicines has completely changed her relationship with her body she no longer is you know hates her Crohn's disease she uses the language just like you say which I could never say she says dad this is actually a gift it allows me to understand my body and I begin to feel it in ways that I need to be more attuned to it. I need to be more careful and gentle with my body. I need to understand what I put into it, how I, you know, what I do. And I'm like, she goes, that's a gift, dad. And I'm like, what, what 26 year old thinks that the disease that could really debilitate you, you can't go out for dinner. You can't just have McDonald's. You can't just grab pizza. She can't do any of that. And yet she sees it as a gift, right? Well, that's because of the, all the work she's done inside with plant medicines. You know, this is an incredible shift that you can begin to do toward your body, yourself, these kinds of things. All of this is rooted in this and, new, a different and world. Let's say that it's, let's say that it's, what you just said, it's the plant medicine giving the worldview that is in our DNA back. Wow. We, that's, you know, wow. I, we both came to that right at the end of wow. that. Sentence, right? Wow. You know, I think that's it. Like, I, I, I'm, this is occurring to me right live with you right now for Arrows is that I think what excites me so much about your work and Darsha's work is that you guys are arriving at the same kind of thread that I've been tugging at from an, a different side. You know, I've been looking at the healing power of psychedelics. I've been looking at the ability that's, that these, these medicines can wake up a culture that can wake us up to a spiritual reality that wake, that can change how we think about disease and cancer and death and dying and, and pain and trauma. Uh, and so all of these things, it's, it's all the same stuff. And I come at it from that thread and I'm landing back in, you know, particularly, and this is the, uh, where I want to take the conversation. Cause one of my frustrations with the psychedelic movement right now is that there is a propensity to see this as a magic cure. If we can just get psilocybin in a pill and we'll put it into the Western medical model and we'll do clinical trials at Johns Hopkins and it'll be, we'll just cl clear our plane, you know, a planet of all trauma. And I'm like, that's not what the plant medicine is teaching. What the plant medicine is teaching is not that we need more clinical trials, which we do. We want to have the, you know, use Western two-eyed seeing, you know, both indigenous and Western science. But I think what the plant medicines are calling us back into is a different way of being in the world. It's a different way of being with our, with ourselves, with how we connect with nature, with how we connect with the source beyond us. It's drawing us back into connections. And so if you just think as an individual, you don't heal by yourself, you heal in connection, you heal in community. And to the degree that these plant medicines draws back into a spiritual community, 
where we can heal in connection, then I celebrate them. But if it's just another pill to take for, an, you know, here's my thing and go back to your life. I want that is not at all what we need for our planet. We need I a, connection. I have a doctoral student, uh, had a doctoral student, he's graduated and he's actually passed, but uh, Ron Kaufman was his name. And um, he did his doctoral dissertation. He had led, oh, something like 300 ayahuasca ceremonies himself. And, and I asked him what he wanted to do for a research question. And he said, I want to see if the ayahuasca experience creates counter hegemonic thinking in participants. And in, in brief, his conclusion was, for the most not, only the, those who essentially did serious worldview reflection preparation, like you're talking about, and reflecting on their life, body, mind, spirit, changes that are going to be important in the future and how it relates to the three-dimensional images of the, lizard, of the dragon that they saw, whatever. So he wanted to uh, start a clinic for anyone that had taken any of the hallucinogenics. If you really want this to be a powerful life transformation, you know, come to this three-day or five-day workshop and join in, in conversation. He passed on before he could do that. But, um, you know, I think that right now I've got a number of uh, ayahuasca friends uh, who, you know, are, who are leaders and, and, and music makers and, and know the plant well, know, the, know the, the, the spirit of the medicine plant well. And, and a couple of them uh, have stopped doing it and are going back to peyote ceremonies. Uh, and, and the reason is the plants that make it are disappearing. And, and, and they're disappearing because if we put this kind of discipline into the preparation like we do for a sun dance and, and, the, and the reflection and the living of community that, that's after it and, and, the, and the applications in life, um, instead of oh, I'm curious or I'm sick and I want this healing, and, and, and bingo. And, you know, and the shamans are subject because of what's happening with colonialization to selling out, if you will. Um, and they admit it. Um, and bingo, all of a sudden now it's this big, big industry. And now we're, we're lo losing the two plants that are required in this mysterious way to uh, for that. So so this is a big topic. Yeah, no, it's big. And I and I think I mean, I want to I want us to kind of I want to pull this other thread of, of just uh uh, what we call integration, right? This is one of the biggest uh, kind of issues that, that we're finding in some of the research around psychedelics is that, yes, you can give someone, uh, I can give anyone five grams of psilocybin and, and give them a transformative experience. That is not a problem. I can dose someone and give them a big wow experience. That is not the answer. The wow experience. We've all had those mountaintop experiences in our life, right? When you're a kid, you go to camp and, oh, I'm going to be best friends with this person because I spent a week with them or whatever, and you never talk to them again, right? I mean, we all have these moments where you kind of really believe something or feel it, and then it goes away. So I, I think the, the issue uh, and the opportunity that is presented to us right now is you have these beautiful sacred plant teachers that can draw us into a different way of being with one another when it's connected 
connected to community. When this experience falls back and you kind of have a, an experience not going to Costa Rica and then coming back and no one in your family understands what you did and it just becomes kind of weird and you don't talk about it and you're just like, I guess that thing happened. What I'm interested in is creating communal change and spiritual communities in each town city in the world that can be a place almost like a, a spiritual community where people can land back in and have conversations about about growth and healing and intimacy and connection so almost like talking circles right these right. these small groups that can begin to be places where you can land that are not hierarchical they're not based upon therapists or physicians running them that's the mistake that's happening right now is that the only people that are getting access to these medicines in canada for instance are our physicians and therapists and they're they're beautiful trusted individuals in our society and i love that but that's not where we need to land with this what needs to be landing is not a medicalization model but a communal spiritual model of change and growth and your worldview uh your 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 you know a kinship worldview to me is the template this is what good looks like for us doing plant medicines right and i would i would kind of add a, a, a maybe a wrinkle to that that says the worldview is the thing and the plant medicine is one of the tools because nice. what yes, I found yes, in, yes, yes. In, in my travels, I found that the use of hallucinogenics uh, was, was sort of combined and, sub, and, and, and replaced with the trans-based learning that comes from ceremony that didn't have like you know the seven ceremonies that i just named there's no there's no pharmaceutical you know change in, 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 in that happens from a plant plant medicine and plant spirit teachers recall so they're there but i think that that there's still the problem of overuse if we frame this as a way of saying ah the way to think of this is that it's about talking circles and community that we use the the pharmaceutical for to get to a worldview. No, we can get to that worldview in many, many ways that can include or not, because ultimately, I, I, I'll give you just one thing that came to my mind. I have a, a, a yoga master friend of mine, Francois, and he's been doing ceremony with me for 12 years here in Mexico. And at first we can, we had some disagreements. So you know, we would talk about philosophically, you know, I said this idea of leaving earth and being, you know, a, a starlight, you know, indigenous people see the, you know, the heaven on earth concept more than that, you know, and that, and that. So I, I actually have a pet, pet feeling that the Eastern traditions come closest to indigeneity, but they just like the Abrahamic ones and others were trying to get back, but got politically uh, adulterated uh, along the way but but you know the so like the the vedic traditions and kundalini are much closer to the, the original stuff but anyway um he said to me i took him on an ayahuasca ceremony and when we came back i he said to me you know every one of the amazing images that i saw every one of them is exactly an image that i saw when i do meditation except maybe a little bit more three-dimensional and colorful, he added, right? But um, I thought that was a, a profound thing for me to learn, that here's a yoga master who's, who's dedicated to meditation, 
when, and his meditation is not with, you know, it's, it's, it's more in the nature of yoga and Kundalini, uh, Eastern traditions. And, uh, and those same things come. And I've experienced so many things that right now, um, I, I rarely do share uh, any any uh, ayahuasca anymore or, or, or anything of those things. I'm finding now with having worked with the cancer and all these things that most of this, until we get to a, a, a certain place where it will, you know, we, we decide or someone else that helps us decide is good. So I just don't, I'm, I'm just saying, I don't want to overemphasize. Yeah, no, I think that's good. And I think that I, I really appreciate that kind of um, that corrective. It's that this is not the only way it's one of the ways I, and I think, uh, you know, if you start looking at indigenous cultures, like the Stolo people where I I'm situated, I, I live and play and work in the land of the, the Matsui first, first nations and the Sumath first nation. And they're the people of the river in, in the Fraser here. And, you know, their longhouse traditions and their ceremonial dances that they do with ceremonial drums. This is this is like the prep is like six to 12 months as an initiate comes into the to the longhouse for their ceremony. And the ceremony could last, you know, five, five days. Right. And you're fasting and you're prepping for a year for this moment. Right. And so and they don't use plants. They use drumming. They use breath, they use dance, they use, you know, to, to move these people into the altered state. Now, when I talk to my friends uh, that, that, you know, they don't obviously talk about the specifics, but they say, Peg, just remember that this ceremony that you are so interested in and, and uh, you know, celebrating that we are part of, she goes, this was, this was outlawed. We, we, this, by the Canadian government, we were put in jail for doing this. If we did this, this was against the Christian doctrine in Canada, and people were put in jail for doing long this kind of exact work. And now you're saying, Peg, these are beautiful practices. We need them in our world. Can you help us, you know, us colonizers, us Western white people? We really want your healing practices. And he looks at me and goes, you outlawed these. You put us in jail and killed us for these. And now you want our medicine. Now you want our ways. And so this, this is, I just have to, with humility, just admit that this is what's happening. We are in a desperation in our, in our planet. And we are looking for those who have answers and our indigenous brothers and sisters have ways of being with one another and in the world that help children thrive, that help us move beyond binary rigid hierarchies. And it helps us all begin connecting with nature, with ourselves and with the great beyond that there is something larger than us. So you're right. This is only plant medicine is only one of them. But that is for I, I I think is is coming out and and it has an opportunity right now to really start to wake a lot of us up to a different way of being in the world and so I, it is a tool and I think it's important to note that a lot of good-hearted people feel like they're misappropriating and they don't have, don't have the right to do indigeneity right and fools crow one of the most respected spiritual uh, in, in you know indigenous uh, figures he said people who understand the medicine know it's to share and people who stand against sharing this medicine don't know the medicine and and you know and indigenous people are in place between a rock and a hard place and you got you got to understand both of them have authentic reasons for, for yay or nay but you know i i participated in a ceremony with the fraser river tribe and um uh all i can say is that they were at first. There was some upsetness that our 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 the, the Cree Sundance was being held on on their prop on their land. Uh, and long story short, 
because uh, they didn't ha- they don't even have a, a, a they don't use a, a Sundance. And, and so there was some tension. People got together in a, a ceremony and I don't I don't don't know what what beyond the, 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 the you know, it was a, a Nipi ceremony and they came out. And it was so beautiful. One of their ceremonies came to our Sundance ceremony where it was a bear ceremony where everybody was in bear. And, 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 and it was so beautiful how they talked about how they, they, they came to a, into community, very different, you know, tribes with, with, with the different ways of, you know, and I think that's a, that's a model and, and, and very, and very, very, very powerful. I wish I could tell some of the things that happened, but you get, you get my drift. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really powerful. And <clears throat> I think there's, um, there's so much for us to kind of explore, you know, in, in your, uh, restoring the the kinship worldview and and its connection to 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 thriving raising of children uh you know altered states uh you know all of these kinds of things are 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 possible in this worldview and i think it really becomes a path back into how we can live in balance in our planet how we can save our planet from you know uh, uh species extinction and how we can live in harmony in ways that allow us to thrive and cooperate and so I, I just see there's so much potential here for us to begin to, uh, at least those of us who are beginning to see some promise from uh, plant medicines, uh, that we can begin to find a lot of wisdom in our indigenous, uh, this indigenous worldview, uh, help us guide and, and find a way forward. And we, can, and we can find that knowledge in plants all around us, mm. even without having to ingest anything. And then also to with, with the animals. Right. And, yeah. and so I'd like to close with a Lakota prayer. Okay. Um, and, uh, and remind everybody that the largest study ever done on sustainability and biodiversity was done in 2019 by the United Nations. Most people saw it on the front page of the paper for one day. Um, and my article in the nation, what the media miss is really important to know. And that is, despite the horrors of a prediction of one million more species going extinct in our generation, uh, which is why it was taken off the front page really quickly, seven times in there, there were, there were 450 scientists, 50 countries, 15,000 peer-reviewed papers. And in that paper, what nobody's, not, not enough people are talking about is where indigenous worldview is operating still, this extinction rate was non-existent or significantly reduced. And they use the word worldview. So, um, you know, this is belongs to all of us. We've, we've taken a, a, a sort of a, a, an adolescent route to excitement and bright lights and speed. And uh, now it's time to realize that that has gotten us in a lot of trouble. And uh, every life system is on the verge of collapse and, and wars are, are, are more, more frequent, et cetera. So um, without, and this is not about romanticizing the indigenous, right? That's the worst thing that we can do, right? This is about historical truth for a change. Only three schools in the United States of America, K through 12 schools have legislation saying, you have to teach some truth about indigenous people, Montana, Oregon, California, which are, and they're all underfunded. So um, I just want to thank you 
for you know just your insight and a brilliant uh, interview. And one, you know, I've been doing interviews two a week for since the book came out and and before that. And uh, and Dorsha Dorsha said this guy's a good interviewer, and boy, she was right. So thank you personally for for your uh, your wisdom and 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 your interest in this. Um, so I'd just like to close up because I, at the top of the hour, I do have a, a call. Mm. <laughs> I'm saying that it's time for us to remember we're all related to walk on the difficult road that we call the road of balance or the red road to wish for the well-being of all our sentient life on earth and that to remember that we're all related is to live in a good way. Thank wow. you so much. Thank you for arrows. Uh, this has been a beautiful uh, session today. I've had uh, four arrows on uh, on my podcast. We've been exploring his recent book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduced 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth. My name is Peg Peters. I'm the host of Unveiled, and I uh, hope you guys have a really great day. <laughs>